This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello. Hello, I'm so excited about I've, this I've never episode. seen you so excited. N- never ever? No. I think no, we- honestly, I, I think the person we're about to interview is like genuinely a genius. He's just such a compelling storyteller. I mean, I am really sort of fan fanboy here. I know, and sort of I knew the name fanboy and I knew bits of the work, but I I had no idea. And sort of having delved into his writing, you're quite right. He, he's he's a brilliant storyteller. Um, tell tell us a bit more. Well, about it's him. Michael Lewis, um, known for a book he wrote about Wall Street in the 1980s called Liars Poker. He did actually work on Wall Street. Uh, for a while, but but not just Liars Poker, the big short, people will have heard of that. A, a really fascinating book about two psychologists, um, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, uh, is called The Undoing Project. And the book we're talking about uh, this week, which is uh, The Fifth Risk. It's really a sort of tribute to public service and an expose of what Donald Trump taking over the US presidency means for that. And here's the heartbreaking thing. As you can hear, Ed is a major Michael Lewis fanboy, but you couldn't be in the same room as him when we did this interview. So you were doing your bits. It was one of the days when you were in your constituency in Doncaster. I almost forgot, actually, the book that, in a way, is my favourite, is is a book called Moneyball. Right. um, Made into a film with Brad Pitt about... Uh, Billy Bean, who there was the, uh, is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And it's how he turned a very small money team into a very successful team by kind of understanding the flaws in the way baseball works. Now that makes it sound like it's a book about baseball, but it's about so much more than that. You know, when Justine is not a natural baseball fan, I persuaded her to watch the film. She loved the film. It's a really, well, maybe I should watch it then. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd never been interested Honestly. in film. Uh, I love the big short as a film, but um, having had this conversation and heard your enthusiasm, yeah. and now it might it might interest. I, I think it's a real privilege to have you on Cheerful Book Club. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. If you do, please do rate, review us five stars, please, on iTunes, because then it'll get more people to be able to listen. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Well, I'm delighted to say, and this is like a personal fantasy of mine, that we are joined on Cheerful Book Club by the absolutely brilliant writer, Michael Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. The reason why I think you are such an exceptional writer today is i think and i've been thinking about this in advance of us meeting it, it is the way you talk about big ideas through storytelling and i guess i wanted you just to talk about that a bit so so the books that really come to mind when i say that are a book called moneyball which is a book of about baseball but it's about so much more than baseball it's about a guy called billy bean who kind of rewrote the rules about the way you think about baseball and who teams have on their team and it's to do with markets and failing markets um a book called the undoing project about amos tversky and danny danny kahneman about behavioral economics the relationship between two people and, and flash boys about high frequency trading but all of those things as i thought about them all of those books and indeed your other books it's about 
you tell stories and then you tell big ideas. Just talk to us a bit about that. You know, it's funny because it is true there are ideas that are at the center of all the books, but the ideas usually come late. Uh, like it's usually after noodling on the character and the situation that the character finds themselves in, and I, I that that penny drops, and I realize there's more at stake than just the character and the situation. So let's talk. Let's take an example. So uh, uh, Moneyball um, got the reason that that the book the story interested interested me in the first place was I just started paying attention to the huge discrepancies in payrolls in in Major League Baseball. Actually, even it started with me first noticing the discrepancies in what individual players were paid on the same team. And I was just curious if there was class resentment caused because you had some people being paid three or four million dollars a year and some people being paid a hundred thousand dollars a year. And went in to start a kick around baseball just to ask that question. Like how do people collaborate when they're being treated so differently? And then it turned out that the story was really about how does a team compete when it's got, you know, one fifth the resources of another team? And how does the Oakland A's win, beat the New York Yankees when the Yankees have five times more money to spend on the players? If the, if the market for these players was efficient, uh, you would think that, that, uh, the team with the most money would just buy the best players and win all the games. So with that in mind, I just went and spent time with Billy Bean and I became entranced with the character of Billy Bean and started to try to shape a story around him. And what interested me about him was he was this character who had himself been misperceived by professional baseball, that he had himself had his life kind of distorted by their their inability to judge base, the baseball players. They'd taken him out of high school and told him he was going to be a future superstar in Major League Baseball, and he thought, if they think I'm that great, I must be that great. And as a result, he hadn't gone to Stanford University, and he regretted it the rest of his life, and he didn't have much of a baseball career. So I'm noodling on his predicament uh, when I start to see the bigger ideas at play in the story. Um, and, and to me, at the center of that story is um, is how difficult market, the difficulty that markets have valuing people. Uh, that here you have this sport that's been played for a century uh, in the same way for the hundred years with millions of people watching it and millions of people thinking they're experts in what makes someone good at it. And and no lack of data or statistics. There are numbers attached to what everybody does on a baseball field. And, and even here, um, a, a team could be built that was very effective out of players that nobody... Th- else thought was valuable. The idea is an idea about markets uh, and how they have trouble with value. And the, the actually the moment when I thought I had that thought, uh, when I realized it was an idea, uh, was it was a funny, I was in the Oakland A's clubhouse talking to the players after a game and happened to notice a few of them coming out of the showers without any clothes on. And they looked so wrong. They were all fat, chubby, you know, misshapen. One of them had two club feet. And I and I went to the, I went to Billy Bean and I said, "Your players do not look like professional athletes." And he said, "That's the point." He said, "The reason they're misvalued is they look wrong." Uh, and when we see a player who we see, when we can look, we d- dig down in the statistics and we can see that he's of great value. When we see he also looks wrong, we know we're likely to get a deal because the market will misvalue him just based on appearance. And I thought, well, well, this is a big story. It's not just baseball, you know, and it's true of all the stories that if it's just about 
if it's just about what it's supposed to be, you know, the, what the, the stated subject is, it, it lacks a certain texture and richness. It's not about baseball. It's about it's about markets and. It's a an experience that lots of people have had being misvalued or misperceived just because of how they look. And that is at the core of your work also, isn't it? Which is a sort of empathy with the trying to get inside the head of the individual that you're talking about. I mean, it is all it is. They are always centered around particular individuals and you getting to know those individuals. I couldn't do. I'm trying to think of there any of the books that I could do uh, without people really letting me into their lives. And, and off the top of the, my head, no. Um, it, it just, it doesn't get interesting uh, when, writing about someone uh, until you feel like you can really get to know them. Some ways, in some ways, in a, how they better than they know themselves. Um, people don't see themselves as well as other people see them. If, if, if they allow the other people to see them. And, um, and so for me, and for me, many of the insights and the fun of the story come after I've been led into the point where the person I'm writing about has just kind of forgotten why I'm there, that, that I've, I've spent so much time uh, marinating in their existence that I'm just part of the existence. It's funny, you, when, you, when I first approach a subject or first start to get another subject and they sense that I might like to write about them, they're wary, right? What is this person going to say about me? The effects of a, having a best-selling book written about me, what are those going to be? And so there's a certain um, caginess usually in the beginning in my relations with my subjects, but I'm there for so long and, and in so many different situations that at some point they say, screw it, I can't do anything about it. He's going to see who I am eventually. And the trick to it all for me is, is getting away from the interview. Um, though the interview can be useful, um, the best thing to do is just try to do things with people. So the best job interview I ever had in my life. Um, I was applying right out of university for a, it was a very hard to get job leading teen, rich teenage American girls through Europe on a very fancy tour. And I mean, it, it, and they were looking for graduates of fine universities who would be kind of examples to the to the girls, and also be you know encourage the parents. They, the parents wanted their girls to hang out with these kind of older people, and so it was hard to get. I went to go to the and I went to the interview, and the man who ran the tour company said, "God, I'd forgotten we had an interview." Right. I'm so sorry. We're busy removing the furniture from this office to this office. Uh, could you just help? You know, and so I moved desks and chairs with him for an hour. And, and at the end, he said, um, thanks, I'll call you later and we'll set up a time for an interview. And instead, he called me and said, you've got the job. Uh, and I don't know, three months later, I was in a hotel room with my fellow leader in, I think, Bruges in Belgium. And I said how strange it was that I got the job without an interview. And I told him what had happened. And he said... I moved the furniture back from that office to the other office. <laughs> and then we went back to him and he said, that's how I interview people. I don't talk to them. I make them do something with me because then I can see how they do things with other people. And it really is true that you, you kind of get to see people in a different way when you're doing things with them. So I try to force them to do things with me. The other thing which you, which you said earlier, which I was going to ask you about and you anticipated it, is running through all of your work, almost all of your work, is a fascination with markets and the failure of markets. Mm -hmm. And you you began life, I think I'm right in saying, as a Wall Street trader, 
Talk to us about your thinking about markets and the way the way that has been your fascination. I, I think it's fair to say, and and the way your thinking has evolved. I ask myself this very question. My own best guess at why I have this obsession or degree of interest is that I grew up in a place that was very different from the rest of the country. It really does have to do with where I'm from. Let's do with New Orleans. New Orleans was not a, I mean, we had markets, but it wasn't a market-based society. Um, it was a family-based society. And what people did for a living and how much money they made and so on and so forth was regarded as secondary or tertiary to, to who they were. And most people didn't have all that much they were doing commercially in the market that was that interesting. It was a dying, it was a dying place when I was growing up. Um, but it was a very happy place. And I had a very happy childhood. And it was filled, teeming with great characters who had it seemed to have interesting lives and lots of peculiar, curious interests and a lot of love. Um, and so when I leave New Orleans at age 17 to go to Princeton and start to meet people who are from r the real part of America, where America has real markets and real successful people and, and uh, real rich people and so on and so forth. I I'm, and I'm astonished by one, how much less charming they are how much less interesting their lives seem to be, less full, how, how much duller they seem to be than most of the people I left behind in New Orleans. Um, I do question, like, what is this other society that New Orleans is, happens to be embedded in? And there's the famous line about New Orleans is that you have to stop thinking of it as the southernmost uh, city in North America and start thinking of it as the northernmost city in, in South America. There, there is some element of truth to that. It really is a different... It's just a different culture. And I think, so I think my kind of wariness and suspicion of especially American success and American market worship starts there. Uh, like I know in my bones that this is not necessarily a better way to organize life. And, it, and it's not ranking people in the way I would naturally rank them. Um, so so that's that's probably the beginning of it. Then... Plop me somewhat arbitrarily wasn't I wasn't questing for a Wall Street job into the beating heart of Wall Street in 1985. I mean, really the center of the place, Solomon Brothers Bond Trading Department. I mean, they happened to move me to the city, and I worked in London for them. But I was back and forth. I was in the middle of that place, uh, really watching what was happening at the heart of capitalism, and and seeing that with just a little patter and not much really genuine use value that I was able to get myself paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to give financial advice at the age of 25, 26. And then if I just kept pretending to be that person, that they would be millions of dollars a year. And then I was surrounded by people who had figured that out and were doing the same. Um, whatever illusions I might have still had, about financial success and, the, and and market outcomes in America came crashing down. I that it was it was so clearly a, an essentially fraudulent situation. Not that I was not that I was committing fraud on the job every day. It was more that the the perception or the assignment of value to me was fraudulent. Um, so then from that moment on, I I'd, I'd lost any kind of 
sense that, yeah, markets always know what they're doing. And I don't mean to say that I think markets are useless or pointless or crazy all the time. They, they do, they're a tool, a very useful tool in a society. But the elevation of them from a tool to just a way to structure the, the entire society, from going to, to I mean, as we've taken the United States anyway, it's gone from being a market economy to a market society. Um, the values that go along with that, uh, they seem worth questioning anyway. Uh, and I, I, so I think, that's where, I think that's where my interest comes from. You've got a podcast called Against the Rules, yes. which I'd str strongly recommend. It's about um, referees in American life or referees in life generally, yes. Referees of all kinds, from basketball to regulators. regulators. To, yes, yeah. What brought you to that, and and sort of what 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 what's the what's the thing behind this contempt for the referee, as you as it, which is the sort of thesis of the of the podcast? It's funny. It started. It it it, it started in an intellectually not very respectable way. Two things happened. My, I have two friends, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell, the writer, who were who had been working on a podcast, Malcolm's podcast. It's called Revisionist, Revisionist History, and Malcolm had persuaded me that a pod, that that there was this audience that I was not reaching with books, and it was totally fun to do, and it didn't take much effort. So he was lying. He was lying. He was lying about the effort. The, the the amount of work that goes into these podcasts is every bit as great as the amount of work that goes into a piece of writing, and, and they're scripted things. Uh, and so it was. It's it's so that was wrong, but it was true that there's a vast and growing audience for these things. Now the subject matter. Um, what had happened was uh, I had been running my. I have three children, age now twenty, seventeen, and twelve. They're all athletes. I'd been basically managing their athletic careers for a decade and because my wife had no interest in it uh, and had been appalled right from the beginning at the way the umpires and the referees were treated at, at youth sports games. I mean, it was unbelievable to see getting beat up by parents, uh, constantly berated by parents. Um, it, it was the, the, there was no sense that this person was just trying to do a job as best they could do. And it didn't matter that it was eight-year-old girl softball. It was that, that, <laughs> that, peop, that people's passions got engaged and directed towards this independent authority, this independent judge, the referee, in ways that were just preposterous. Um, and then, and nobody seemed. In addition, if you then I started thinking about the referee and looking at what was happening in professional sports, and no one ever says, um, "Yeah, we won because the ref gave us a call." It's the ref always somehow wronged both sides at once, which is actually logically not possible, right? Uh, it, everybody comes away feeling aggrieved by something the referee did. Uh, so that was that got me thinking about the subject and wondering if this was true outside of sports. And we started looking at, well, this is the same as happening with regulators. And it doesn't take long before you start to realize there's a story. It's a bigger story. And it's about kind of attacks on independent authority and on the, on the independent judge. And that's what the podcast tries to address. It's like, what, what is happening? Why is this happening? Is there some parallel or, or connection between this mistrust of referees or this contempt for referees and what we see in your new book, The Fifth Risk, in the Trump administration, but also so more widely with skepticism about experts? 
So there is a connection, and it's not a connection I was naturally drawing uh, because I came at it for di- – I, I got interested in the podcast for a different reason than I got interested in the book. But the book is the book is reinforcing the story in a funny way. The biggest source of referees is the government. Um, I mean, the government plays this huge refereeing role, it, it regu- it, it, it necessarily needs to regulate markets. Um, and those regulators, they, they are, they're under attack in the same way that the professional basketball referees are under attack. And Trump is able to attack them in the same way that, say, a professional basketball coach after a game, after a loss, can attack a referee and everybody just nods and forgets the stupid things the coach did that led to the loss. And everybody starts to think, oh, no, it was the referees that caused this loss. So the scapegoating, is a, it serves a similar purpose. Um, and the weakening of that independent authority has similar sort of effects. In basketball, though, you know, it's just that it, it's – it gets harder and harder to manage this contest, but it's, it's it's a trivial thing. But in the government, it's not a trivial thing. That if you weaken the regulatory powers, what happens? Well, a version of what happens on the basketball court. The superstars get their way. So what does that do? It takes an unequal situation and it makes it even less equal. Um, the rich and powerful get to get to uh, get to do whatever they want at the expense of everybody else because the one check on their behavior can no longer function as a check. So the two, I think the two events are connected and the spirit of the two this, of the book is, is very close to the spirit of the podcast. I feel in some ways what it is, is it's in part a love letter to the, unseen work that goes on in government that either we take for granted or we're uninterested in and and then it's about what happens when you get an administration who are ideologically suspicious of it and and pretty uninterested in it at what point did you realize what you were writing about and how did you get there with this so it's funny this was kind of for me a back backward to my my usual process my usual process is some character uh, attracts me to it in the first place. It might be a question that gets me to the character, but the character is what I'm initially energized by. In this case, what energized me in the first place was um, the spectacular uh, negligence of Donald Trump. Um, By law, he'd been required to build a transition team during his campaign. That transition team was hundreds and hundreds of people and because he had no interest in it, Chris Christie did it for him. And actually, by all accounts, it was quite good, meaning that the kind of people who were going to roll into the Treasury and the Defense Department and the Department of Transportation and so on and so forth, all the branches, all the different departments of government had some knowledge or understanding of the place they were going to inherit from the Obama administration. And so they were pre- prepared to have the conversations you would need to have from the with the outgoing administration about what was going on in here and how they'd managed the problems of the last eight years and who the people were and wh- who was good and who was bad and that kind of thing. And Trump fired that entire operation the day after the election. And so none of the meetings, none of the exchange of information or knowledge took place. None of it. Um in things as critical as like how you manage the nuclear stockpile. So that caught my eye. Because it was going on sort of in plain sight. It was going on in plain sight, but I think 
but we've arrived at the point in American politics where people have forgotten that the government's the point. They, they're so absorbed by just the day-to-day politics, the day-to-day contest between the two parties. They forget that the, the point of winning is to run this government of two million people. That's what you do. And that's how you get things done. And if you're, if you're that negligent that you're not going to even bother finding out what's going on inside the place, and Trump to this day has never indicated any interest in knowing anything about what's going on inside of his own government. He's just kind of attacked it willy-nilly by tweet. Um, and the people who work there as deep state people. Because that's not what it is. I mean, you you in Britain may, ha- may have a deep state. You have a civil service that actually runs the, your your government and and it can pretty well run itself no matter who's coming into office and who's going out. Because you've got that contrast where an election here could be won on the Thursday. There could be a new prime minister moving into number 10 on the Saturday. There you go. So yeah. we, And we have a, a system where there's months between or a couple of months between when the three months between when the election happens and the president and the new president moves in. But also he appoints 4,000 people to run the government. I mean, it is a management job partly. Uh, And that, so the fact, so this is what gets me into it in the first place. I think when I realize nine months after the election that I can go see in his home the man who was running the nuclear stockpile, our nuclear weapons, in charge of them, knew more about them, and nobody's asked him any questions yet. That I can do that anywhere in the government. Uh, well, there's going to be a story here. I didn't know what it was or what length it was. The thing that surprised me and continues to surprise me was the richness of the characters I encounter. That the people who are actually working in government, I think I'd always just taken it for granted they'd be a little gray. Um, because they're recessive, they are recessive. They don't seek attention. And, and in fact, they're afraid of attention because they've learned from a lifetime of working in the government that the, when you get attention, it's bad. Uh, there's never good attention. There's not a culture of recognition where you're celebrated for having done something great. If you do something great, you just move, keep going, you know, you, and you hope nobody really calls your name out in public. Um, so they're wary as subjects. But once you find out what they're doing and why they're doing it, um, they become really wonderful subjects. Even now, given whatever, how many decades of reflexive hostility uh, towards the American bureaucrat by the American public, that the American bureaucrat can be actually heroic and there for the right reasons and operating in, the, in, the, in, a, in a wonderful spirit – it's kind of nice to know, you know, it's amazing it was able to, that, that character was able to survive. And, and how did this initial conversation that you had, how did that get you onto the subject of risk, which is a recurring theme in your work? How did it get me onto the subject of risk? The subject of risk was there from the beginning, because the, what was going on in my head when I saw that the president w- was not going to know about the government he was running and so and was going to put in all kinds of inappropriate people to jobs that were really, really important. Um, I I was already thinking, what's the risk of that? And the reason I was thinking about it that way was I'd finished a book, I'd just finished a book, The Undoing Project, about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, two Israeli psychologists, whose work was all about the way people misperceive risk, um, about how when people move through the world – and they're they're inherently in probabilistic situations. 
And even when there are statistics that can be accessed and you can calculate the odds of any given decision, people don't resort to the statistics. They resort to a story in their head. And the story in their, the story in their head is, can, be, can lead them astray in all kinds of ways. And from the work of Kahneman Tversky, um, in one of their papers, it might even be in correspondence. I'm trying to remember where I first saw it, but it stuck in my head. They were surmising that they were saying, saying how interesting it was, and they'd done some experiments with subjects. Um, that when you told, when you took a uh, something that was, had a one in a million chance of happening, and you shifted the odds of that thing to one in ten thousand, that people didn't feel the difference. They just thought, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. You just made something a hundred times more likely, whatever it is, and people said, ah, it's remote. It won't happen. Uh, so people didn't feel probability. Uh, and I thought that's kind of part of the reason Donald Trump could get elected and behave this way, because there's no way that managing the government does anything, the way he's doing it, does anything but increase the odds of a lot of bad things happening. I mean, the government is a manager of a portfolio of risks. Uh, all those risks become more amplified when you neglect them. You don't, you're not managing them well. Um but people aren't feeling this in the way they should feel it. So that was, that sort of, exp- my, my previous book, it sort of explained to me why Donald Trump was possible. Do you have any faith in the rationality of human beings? I do have a bit less faith in the power of American democracy to generate the right sort of outcomes, the long, the outcomes that are the long, in the long-term interests of the society. However, I also think that part of why Donald Trump is possible is that we've, we've had, from any historical perspective, many, 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 many decades in America of essentially peace and prosperity. Yes, we've been at, we've been in a lot of little wars, but not there's been no war that's been an, that's posed any kind of existential threat, right? It's not World War II, not even World War One, much less the Civil War, much less the Revolutionary War. There's not been a pandemic that's killed five percent of the population. We haven't seen that in a long time. Um, there's not been the threat. The Cold War even felt like felt to the American people like an existential threat. At any given time, some Russian lunatic might press a button and would all be incinerated. So there has not been that feeling of genuine terror. Uh, and I think in the absence of that, people have the luxury to stray from their long-term self-interest. The only thing I fear is that they have to be draw- taken to a point where there's a genuine existential threat caused by themselves, brought upon themselves by their own behavior, uh, that they snap to and and put people in office who actually can run the place. Well, we've, we've barely scratched the surface of The Fifth Risk, but I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's a very odd feeling to be reading nonfiction uh, and simultaneously enjoying it and feeling terrified at the, the same time. That is an association that I generally have with fiction but it's it's tremendous storytelling and we always ask people for a reason to be cheerful and i think you've sort of summed it up with the 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 quiet work that goes brilliant people that you don't hear about that goes on within government departments well i would add one thing yeah since that is the theme of your podcast and it's something that i'm going to steal from one of my former subjects from amos tversky 
Um, and it isn't, it's not just cheerfulness. It's, it was about optimism versus pass- pessimism. It was the reason to be optimistic. And Amos Tversky said, I think very wisely, that um, he was a principled optimist because pessimism was stupid. Because when you're pessimistic, you live it twice. Once when you're anticipating the bad thing happening and the second time when the bad thing actually happens. Why on earth do that? That if you can possibly will yourself into an optimistic state, you are better off. There's absolutely no benefit to the pessimism. We'll take that. That's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real treat. Uh, Michael Lewis, thank you. Thank you. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. 